Let me welcome you to the story today again. Um, uh, welcome everybody, especially if it's your first time. Uh, welcome to those joining us online as well. Thank you all for uh, tuning in wherever you are in the world. Thank you for being with us in this way. Uh, also, happy Mother's Day once again to all the, the moms and um, soon-to-be soon moms and grandmoms and uh, godmoms and adopted moms. Every, all, the mo all the women who aren't biologically moms but have been like mothers to us, like it's a great day to celebrate mothers. I also understand there's pain in the room anytime we have a day like Mother's Day. Like a lot of us, like um, maybe you're, you're grieving, you, you don't have your mom with you anymore, or you didn't ever have a strong connection there, or maybe you, you want to be a mom and you, it hasn't happened for you yet. Um, it doesn't look like it will. I, listen, I, we understand all of that, and we hold the grief and the joy and tension in the room, and we don't, uh, don't want to put up a facade and act like everybody's just 100% happy today. But one thing we do all rejoice in is the fact that our God loves us like a good mother would. And uh, the Bible says that God protects his children, you and me, like a, like a mother bird shields her babies under her wings. And, and that's how God looks at us and, and that's how God is toward us. And so regardless of where Mother's Day lands with you as a, as a secular holiday, uh, we celebrate God's motherly love uh, for us today. Um, so I, I'm going to dive right in today instead of making small talk because, uh, man, I've been a little bit long today. So the, uh, <laughs> you might have noticed uh, we didn't start this service until 1110. My bad. Totally my fault. Um, 945, kind of a long story. Get it? Anyway, all right, so I'm, I'm doing what I said I wouldn't do and I'm making small talk because uh, this, this is a little bit of a tough one today. I don't really want to talk about this. I'm stepping on toes in some very like I think some very existential ways. So today we're gonna hold some things in tension in the room. We're gonna talk about leadership and we're going to talk about surrender. Uh, so we're gonna talk about taking up responsibility and letting go of responsibility. And uh, hopefully this will all uh, land in a good place uh, for you. We're in part six of eight of this series called Make, uh, uh, Keep Jesus Weird. And uh, this is a look at the first eight chapters of a book in the New Testament called Acts. And it's a sort of a, a documentary book about what happened in the first generation of Christianity. And the time span from Acts 1 to Acts 28 spans 25, 30 years. But it documents in detail like what happened to the first Christians. And so we're in chapter 6 now. We've got two more after this. Uh, you have study guides that I uh, made up this week to uh, hopefully help in some way. You find those helpful. And if you don't have a Bible with you, you can at least follow along in the scriptures. I'm going to read in just a moment from those passages. One thing we've seen already from the book of Acts is that the first Christians were a strange bunch. And they were defined by a few particular peculiarities. Um, first of all, there was the leadership of the church, which wasn't decorated, um, educated, uh, seminary-trained leaders. It was just ordinary people that Jesus had told would one day soon be leading a movement that would sweep the world and, and, and take the world by storm. It's exactly what happened. In the months that followed Jesus' resurrection, like people came out of the woodwork to join up, like by the thousands. And so within months, it goes from being 12 guys following a dead guy, and then you got 20,000 plus. And so we've been dealing with the why behind that, and the, the people that joined up must have believed the eyewitness reports of those who saw the resurrected Jesus. That's the only way to make sense of this. But Jesus told them they would soon 
take up the mantle of leadership. And that's what happened. And they became like the go-to guys. They were in the spotlight. They were responsible for the church's growth and success. And I imagine that was a pretty heady thing for them, for these guys that had never really been in leadership before. Suddenly they're leading this amazing um, movement. So that was one thing the church was identified for. The other thing was this uh, socioeconomic reality that the church introduced as a countercultural measure against the ways of the world. And um, to a lot of people today, it looks a little bit like socialism. I've had a lot of folks come up since I preached on Acts 2, especially, Acts 2 and 3, um, asking, were Christians socialists? Like, should Christians today kind of lean that direction and, and all that? And I understand the similarities. That The only real important difference was um, the sharing that went on among the first Christians didn't need to be legislated. So it wasn't governed. It wasn't handed down to them by a government. They shared all they had in common with each other because that's how they understood love to look. Because their hearts were moved, they shared what they had willingly. They served each other willingly. And so they, they gave their money away. Some of them gave their time away. Some of them um, gave their talents in that way. And, and that's what the first generation Christians called discipleship. Another word for it is leadership, which I'm going to get to in just a moment. What I want you to see is that even though we've kind of parted ways with that way the church used to be. Like, we're not living in a commune. Hallelujah. Like, I'm not even proposing that we live in a commune together. Y'all can keep your house, and we'll keep ours, and see y'all on Sunday. That works for me. Does that work for you? I think if you, if you lived with, with me, you might not ever listen to anything I had to say again. So distance can be nice, right? So personal space is part of our culture. But I think you'd be surprised by just how similar the church operates today to the first generation church. Here's some simple examples. Like, like some people here today have given and have pledged to give a lot of money to support the church's ministries. Some people have given or pledged a little bit of money. And then some people... Like 40% of people who come to the story haven't given any money that's been documented by, you know, whatever, by name or whatever. Now, my question is, um, do we then base the church's ministries to these families and individuals um, uh, based on how much they've given? Like, will the piece of bread you're given at communion later be proportionate in size <laughs> to the amount of money you've pledged? If that is the case, some of you are going to get like half a loaf, and some of you will get a few crumbs, and then some of you are going to have to pretend like you did back at the tea party when you were a kid, like <laughs> pretending to eat. Yeah, okay. Um, like, that's okay. The point is, that's not how we do it. Regardless of how much you've given or if you've given anything at all, everybody receives the same. That's not how the world works. That's how the church works. Then, in Acts 6, in, Acts, in the first parts of Acts, and now as well. Like, there's people that give a lot of time as well, money isn't the only thing we give. We give our time. People serve on teams and lead teams and do groups and other kinds of leadership capacities. Or you go and serve at Jubilee or you go overseas to the Dominican Republic or wherever. And, and we see that and we appreciate that. But you don't do those things to earn yourself any entitlements. 
Like we don't have a donut with your name on it when you walk in on a Sunday morning. Donuts are and always will be first come, first serve, regardless of how many hours you volunteer. Like <laughs> it's because you work a lot at the church doesn't mean your baby gets the comfortable crib in the nursery. Like that's not how we roll, even though that's how the world works a lot of the time. What you do, what you contribute earns you stuff. That's not how the church functions. So in some ways we still have this uh, this, uh, this giving, the sharing that is motivated by the love in our hearts. And some of you give a lot. Some of you receive. The point is that there is gonna be a, a season and a way in which you give and a season and a way in which you receive. Everyone gives, everyone receives in different times and in different ways. But that is how Christian community works. And whenever you're called out to give a little bit more and extend yourself, you don't do so with, with uh, uh, you know, angst, or negativity in your heart. You do so because giving is better than receiving. Jesus coined that phrase in the book of Acts. He said to give is better than to receive. It's more blessed than to receive. But there are times in which you need to stop giving, draw back, and be a recipient. In which you need to stop working and just absorb what others have to give. That is what leadership looks like. What gets toxic for us sometimes, even as Christians, is when we take that idea that to give is better than to receive to its logical extreme, and we develop in our minds an extrinsic sense of human worth. And we connect our identity and our value as people to what we do and how much we produce. And that's where we cross the line. So those are the things we're holding in tension today as we talk about leadership in the Christian um, tradition. Now, uh, you might be thinking today that you're not a leader. Um, maybe you're not a C-suite, you know, exec at work. Maybe you're not the president of whatever group you're involved with. Maybe you're not a pastor, a public speaker, or whatever. Like, you're just thinking, I'm a regular person. I'm not a leader. But in both secular and Christian worldviews, leadership is always equated with uh, influence. I mean, every leadership book you'll ever read will define leadership as influence. So to lead is to have influence over someone or some group of people. I would suggest that all of us have influence over someone in some way. Now, those levels of influence might come and go, rise and fall, but we all have the ability to influence. Influence is the capacity to have an effect on the character, development, or behavior of someone or something. If you're sitting here thinking I'm not a leader, I would suggest that, in fact, you are. Every one of us is influencing people. From the Christian perspective, this leadership Power doesn't come from above. It doesn't come from your ability to promote others to higher rank. It doesn't come from your position. It comes instead from your willingness to serve. Servant leadership is redundant in the Christian worldview. And so to lead is to serve. And if you're serving others, that's how you influence them, influence by self-sacrifice. That is the model of Jesus's Leadership To be a disciple of Jesus is to be a leader who lays down your life for the sake of others. So 
I'm gonna look a little bit closer at how this leadership fleshed itself out in the first generation of Christians. This is in Acts chapter six. It's in your study guides. You can follow me, follow along with me. Acts chapter six, I'm gonna read verse one. I'm gonna stop and talk about it for just a second. And I promise I'm not gonna do that with every verse in this chapter, but this one's kind of important that we understand the terms. In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, disciples are just church members, so the church is still growing, The Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. All right, this is the first conflict in Christian history, the first of many, unfortunately. And this one, however, was not about who's sleeping with who or what color the carpet is or how loud the music is or how long the preacher preaches. This was actually about something important. Like this was about feeding people. And this is the first fight. And the the issue here is that there were two brands of Jewish people within the first generation church. So first gen Christians were all Jews. I've said this a thousand times, but if you're new here, you might not know that Christianity began as a denomination of Judaism. It met in synagogues and at the temple and all that until later. And so all these people were Jewish people. And there were Hellenistic Jews, there were Hebraic Jews. Hellenistic Jews belonged to families that had been either exiled from Jerusalem by some king long ago and their families had been forced to live somewhere else for a time or they had willingly left Jerusalem to go and do something somewhere else. It's called the diaspora where Jews spread out beyond Judea uh, into the world beyond. And those families oftentimes um, would earn their citizenship in the Roman Empire because oftentimes these families were sent off as slaves. And whenever in the Roman Empire, whenever you were bought out of your slavery, you were given Roman citizenship. And so these Hellenistic Jews had come back to Jerusalem many times with Roman citizenship and uh, always speaking the Roman language, which was Greek, at the time, and so that the Hebraic Jews who never left Jerusalem kind of felt like these Jews were a little too big for their britches. They're a little self-important, speaking that enemy language and flaunting their Roman citizenship, like we're the real ones, right? And so you can imagine just by human nature, this happens. So there was a disparity. The other disparity is that the Hebraic Jews outnumber the Hellenistic Jews. So the Hebraic Jews held a majority view. And so there was this daily distribution of food for vulnerable people within the first generation of the church. And part of the vulnerable community was uh, widows. Widows, obviously, uh, their husbands had died and they had not remarried. And throughout the Bible times, they were some of the most vulnerable people. They were susceptible to not only loneliness um, and despair and depression, but even uh, economic challenges like poverty and homelessness and sickness and things like that. And so almost 100 times in scripture, God instructs his people to look after the widows. Oftentimes he'll tag on orphans with widows. Look after the widows and orphans because they are the most vulnerable kinds of folks around you. And so there are some widows in the first church that are not being looked after like the other widows are. The Hellenistic Jews who have converted to Christianity, they've become Christians, they bring this to the attention of the 12. And they say, this is not right. And this is what happens next in verse two, two through six. It says, up, uh, it, sorry, it says, uh, so the 12 gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God, to study the word of God, in other words, and prepare to fill the hearts of those we're leading with a message of encouragement. It would not be right for neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. 
Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and we will give our attention to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And this proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. We'll talk about Stephen next week in part seven. And they chose Philip, who we'll talk about in part eight. And then they chose five other dudes whose names are hard to pronounce. And a convert, the last one was a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. Now, laying your hands on them was biblically a sign of passing the mantle of leadership to them, entrusting them with some responsibility that had been yours, all right? So, um, what's going on here? What's really cool about this slide you're looking at now is that all seven of the names of these leaders are Greek names. And so, in response to the first crisis or conflict within the church, the, the members, the, the Christians, all voted to appoint seven Hellenistic Jewish Christians to oversee the entire food distribution. Now keep in mind, the Hebraic Jews had the majority. And so there is this uh, selflessness in this vote to say, we understand it's the widows you care for the most that are going without. So you guys handle this. We trust you. Go, take care of this. We believe you can do this. And, and the disciples, uh, the 12 apostles, I should say, they're the ones who are giving up the most. Because what you have to understand is up to this point in the church's brief history, the 12 had done it all. They were the heroes they were the super leaders. They were the ones everybody pat on the back and said, thank you so much for all that you're doing. They were the ones that uh, when it was their birthday, like everybody showed up and, and, and gave the best gifts and, and partied the hardest like, like because these were the heroes. And under their watch, on their watch, like the church had grown from 12 to over 20,000. That's pretty successful leadership. And I just say that to suggest that maybe it was hard for them to start giving away power. There's inherent power in doing something and doing it fairly well over the long haul. There's inherent power in finding your niche, making yourself necessary. Not by virtue of who you are, but by virtue of what you do. And we all get tangled up in these kinds of ego trips. And I could go through the list of how we do this. It can happen from your home, in your situation at home, where you helicopter parent and do every little thing for your kids, and people call you a great parent, and you're really just messing up your kids. Sorry, I do it too. Like, we should let them brush their own teeth. You know what I mean? I'm just kidding. So, it's a poor example. But... I don't brush my kids' teeth. I feel the need to say that now. Um, <laughs> but this happens in all sorts of ways. Y'all have known micromanaging leaders. Maybe you work for one. Maybe you are one. People that hold on to power. And so these disciples must have faced the same temptation to relish the glory of self-serving leadership and to say something like, well, if you want something done right, you gotta do it yourself like we say all the time. If the, disciples, if the 12 apostles had said in this moment, if you want something done right, you gotta do it yourself, they would have sacrificed the entire momentum 
of the Christian movement. Right there, Christianity would have stopped in its tracks because the church never would have outgrown the leadership of these 12. But by sharing their power, letting go of some control, letting others take it and run with it, even if they don't do it the same way, even if they do it different, even if they stumble in the beginning, like blessing them to take this control, to take this power and go is part of what it means to be a leader in the tradition of, uh, of Jesus. Now, these disciples learned it from somewhere. They, they learned it from Jesus, the guy they followed. Jesus was also willing to share his power and to share his glory. Jesus could have been a one-man show. I hope that goes without saying. Like, he probably could have pulled that off. He's Jesus. Like, he could have been like a circus act, one-man circus act, going from town to town, raking in the prophets and getting pats on the back for how awesome his miracles are or were. And, and yet he chose from the very beginning, before there was even a crisis of leadership, that he chose 12 and he entrusted them. And when it came time to spread the message, he let them go and do it. And, and he, he blessed them on the way. He was willing to let go of some of that power because that's what real leadership looks like. Now, before I lose you, because some of you are thinking, what does this have to do with me? This feels like a leadership summit or something, and um, I understand that dilemma. Um, but I would remind you again that you are a leader and that if you learn to lead in unhealthy ways, if you lead your life in unsustainable, overworked, self-seeking ways, you put yourself, your soul, and those you're leading in danger. And to understand how this, we have so much at stake today, I think it helps to even rewind the tape further than 2,000 years ago, but rewind the tape 13, 1400 years before that, to the time of a man named Moses. Most of you know part, bits and pieces of Moses' story. You know that Moses stood up to Pharaoh and did some cool stuff and freed some slaves and parted the seas and all that. But you don't know probably that Moses um, was a leader whose leadership was tested after all that. His leadership wasn't put to the test until he was out in the desert trying to create a new society that worked with a bunch of former slaves who had never lived outside of their slavery before. That's when his leadership was put to the test. And in the beginning, he failed the test. It didn't look like he was failing. It looked like he was succeeding. And this is the real dilemma and delusion of wrong-headed leadership is that it looks like success. People pat you on the back for it. Moses is the man. Every morning, he gets up, sits on a little throne out in the desert, and people line up to bring him their problems. And he tells them what the answer is. Everything from land disputes to, you know, petty theft to, like, murder and stuff. He's deciding on everybody. He's the, he's the one. And he's kind of cool with that. As you can imagine, his head grows by the minute. And then his father-in-law, Jethro, comes to pay him a visit. And this is that story from the book of Exodus. It's in your study guides as well if you don't have a Bible, but turn your Bible if you can. Exodus chapter 18, verse five is where I'll start. And then, listen, after five, I'm gonna jump to verse 13 so you can jump with me. Uh, I'm, there's part of the, in the study guide. I'll, I'll put more there, but I'm gonna ver verse five to verse 13. All right. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, together with Moses' sons and wife, came to him in the wilderness. So, 
Moses' father-in-law, Moses' sons, and Moses' wife all come with his father-in-law. Who is Moses' wife living with? Her parents. Is that a good sign or a bad sign? (laughs) This should be easy. Moses' family has moved out. They're living with her parents. This is not normal. It's not good. It's a little red flag. Come to him where he was camped near the mountain of God. The next day, Moses took his seat to serve as judge for the people, and they stood around him from morning till evening. When Jethro saw all that Moses was doing for all the people, he said, Moses, you're a hero. Nope, nope, wait a minute. That's not what he said. He said, what are you doing for the people? Why do you alone sit as judge? Why all these people, while all these people are standing around you from morning until evening? Moses answered him, because I'm the man, basically is what he said. Because people come to me to seek God's will. Whenever they have a dispute, it's brought to me. I decide between the parties and inform them of God's decrees and instructions. If you want something done right, you do it yourself. Moses' father-in-law replied, what you are doing is not good. This is the last thing Moses expected to hear. He expected to be honored by his father-in-law. Do you have any idea how bad a man wants the approval of his father-in-law? Like, (laughs) this was was a defining moment. Moses was the man. He had freed the slaves. He was doing it all. Like, give me a pat on the back. You know? What you're doing is not good, Jethro said. You and these people who come to you will only wear yourselves out. So not only will Moses wear himself out, who else will? The people who come to get help from him. Because they wait in line in the hot sun all day. And when they finally get to the great leader Moses, he's a shell of his former self because he hadn't had a full night's sleep in three years. It's very disappointing, very frustrating for everyone involved. And Jethro continues, the work is too heavy for you. You cannot handle it alone. Listen now to me and I will give you some advice. May God be with you. You must be the people's representative before God and bring their disputes to him. Teach them his decrees and instructions. Show them the way they are to live and how they're to behave. But select capable men from all the people, men who fear God, trustworthy men who hate dishonest gain, and appoint them as officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. Have them serve as judges for the people at all times, but have them bring every difficult case to you. The simple cases they can decide themselves that will make your load lighter because they will share it with you. If you do this and God so commands, you will be able to stand the strain and all these people will go home satisfied. Now this is the strangest verse in all of scripture. There's a lot of weird verses. This is the the strangest. You ready for it? Moses listened to his father-in-law. And did everything he said. So these are, it's a lot of words and it's easy to gloss over what's happening and what Moses is losing here by shrinking his circle from everybody in the community to just a few leaders. He is limiting his impact or so it feels. It feels like a loss to him because not everybody sees him as their direct leader. Now these folks are their direct leaders. So there's some grieving there. There's some, there's some loss But Jethro insists this is what real leadership looks like. And he knows his son needs it. Son-in-law needs it. Because his daughter is living with him again. I just want to paint a picture for how I believe Moses' life must have looked at this point. And I'm going to put it in modern terms and you can tell me how familiar this sounds. 
I imagine Moses understood himself to be a very important figure. A lot of people depended on him, and he knew it. People respected him and looked up to him, but only so long as he fulfilled his function as their leader. So his worth was directly connected to his productivity. I imagine that Moses got up every morning and the first thing on his mind was all the stuff he had to do. And when he hit the pillow at night and finally went to sleep, he went to sleep grieving all the things he was unable to do that day, all the things he left on the table. I imagine Moses being the kind of guy that drinks a little too much coffee. And the girl at Starbucks knows his order without him even having to say it. She gets it ready for him, and when he leaves, she tells the other baristas the same joke every time. What does Moses do with his coffee? No one? He brews it. He, he brews. He brews it. He, anyway, that hasn't worked at any service today, but I'm going to keep trying. Uh, some days, coffee isn't enough for Moses, and so he'll mix in a Red Bull or a Monster energy drink or maybe an extra Adderall here or there just to get through the day and, and fulfill the function that God has him here to fulfill. Moses constantly cancels appointments with his doctors and his dentist because who has time to go to a doctor at a moment like this? When things settle down, he tells himself, he'll take care of himself. He'll catch up on all those appointments. It's been 8,000 miles since Moses' last oil change. Uh, the check engine light has been lit up for quite some time, but who has time to mess with a mechanic at a busy season such as this? Moses' mom calls at least once a week, and he hits the red ignore button because he knows if he answers, he's just going to have to hear her complaining about how little he calls her, and he just doesn't have the capacity to cope with mom's guilt trip right now, even though it's Mother's Day. Moses, you got to pick up the phone on Mother's Day. You know what I mean? Like... Got to hit that green button, Moses. <laughs> like Mother's Day of all days. But he lives in this avoidance capacity. And it affects his marriage, too. Moses' marriage is, uh, you know, strong to everybody on the outside looking in. You know, their neighbors just think she's away on vacation. And uh, they still love each other. They speak well of each other. But they just don't connect the way they used to. They rarely talk about anything other than the kids or work. They make love once a month, mostly out of obligation. They're just too exhausted. He's tired from all the work he's doing. She's tired from basically being a single mother and putting up with Moses' cranky attitude when he gets home from work. It affects his life with his kids as well. Moses thinks of himself as a good father, but lately he just can't seem to focus on his kids. Even when he's with them, he's not really there, you know? He's thinking about all the stuff he's left undone at work. And so whenever it's time to play hide and seek with his little ones, he chooses to seek instead of hide so that he can have a few minutes alone with his phone. He counts slower than anyone's ever counted to 10 so that he can catch up on emails while he's counting. And then he goes and he, he finds the hiders. When he finds them, he tickles them and he laughs with them, but he knows they're onto him. When he looks into their eyes, he sees not just joy, but some kind of sadness. Like, kids are better lie detectors than anyone else. They know when you're just pretending. And Moses knows he's been found out. He just feels like he's never really himself. 
He, did, he wouldn't call himself an alcoholic, per se, but, but, you know, it used to be like one glass of wine with dinner once in a while, and now it's turned into almost a bottle of wine most nights. And when his wife, like, presses him on it, he's like, you know, I need it to relax. And then he hears himself, I need it. So he has to prove it to her that he doesn't really need it, that he's still the man she married. So he drinks iced tea instead of wine, but behind her back, he doubles down on the Ambien that night so he can go to sleep, you know. And Even though he's pretending to be in control, he's really out, out of control. And he faces this daily dilemma. Tell me if this sounds familiar at all to any of you, but when he's one place, he's never fully there. When he's another place, he's never fully there. When he's at work, he feels bad for not being a better father and husband. When he's at home, he feels bad for not being a better worker. And it just eats him up inside. Now, deep down, Moses knows this path he's on is unsustainable. But he doesn't see a way out. Now, does this life sound familiar to any of you? It sounds painfully familiar to me, especially the no way out part. It's so easy to start to feel locked in to whatever overburdened life you're living so this is the tricky part of busyness as an idol that, that really gets us. We start to think that's the only way to live or the best way. It's the way we're supposed to lead our lives. If we're not staying busy all the time, then, then what are we doing? And it's so deceptive. We convince ourselves no matter how many sermons we hear or passages we read, there's no way out of this problem. Other people might have a way out of their issues. I don't have a way out of mine. My stuff's too important. No one understands my stuff. Pastor Eric doesn't understand what it's like to be a mother of four. You're right. I don't. I have no idea. I weep for you. When I think about your situation, mother of four, I have no idea what it's like to be a partner at a law firm. I don't know. I do know what it's like to feel locked into a life that feels unsustainable where you worry every minute, will this be the day I hit the wall? Listen, the idolatry of productivity is at the root of all of our worst problems and all of our worst decisions. Some of you are thinking, I need a new job, I need a new wife, I need a new life. You need a nap. <laughs> they don't promote you for taking naps. No one pats you on the back for being all in on a hide and seek game. They should. Because we're missing out. We're missing out. It should never be lost on us when we look at that list of top 10 rules God gives us for a good life, that God includes among such important things as don't murder people and don't sleep around on your spouse, this rule that every seventh day you are to do nothing. Every seventh day you are to shut it down. Most of us have no respect whatsoever for the Sabbath until we want some fried chicken and go to a Chick-fil-A on a Sunday. Ah, Sabbath! 
dang it, Sabbath is today. Oh, man. I guess I'll go to Raising Cane's. Like, that's, that's how, <laughs> it's better anyway. Don't at me, it's true. Anyway, <laughs> that's the most disturbing thing I've said the whole sermon, and I've said a lot, so some of you just checked out right now. Right. Every seventh day, you should do nothing. Why would God include that rule in the top 10 list? Maybe God understood then the dangers of worshiping at the altar of productivity. Maybe he knew, as we know today, that everybody's gonna worship something. Everybody worships at some altar. And at every altar, something dies. And at the altar of productivity, your relationships die. You were not made for this. There is a way out of this. But you have to change what you value. You have to change what you prioritize. I promise there's a way out. Even though it doesn't feel that way, <clears throat> there is a way out. Leadership. Leadership is influence. We've covered that. <clears throat> and if that's the case... I would just ask you to honestly consider how well you're able to lead and influence others when you're barely hanging on yourself. You think that's what God wants for you, for your leadership? To be dependent on all kinds of different substances to get up enough or down enough? There's a better way and a better life a life of balance and ryth rhythm that makes sense. I'll just offer these three things. It's 1210. So I'm going to offer these three things, and then I'm going to sit down. These are very simple things, very simple, but not easy things that Gio and I over the years have kind of figured out in our lives, our very busy, self-important, occasionally, lives. First is the importance of setting priorities. Second is shrinking your circle. And the third is sharing your burden. Setting priorities does not mean a to-do list. Would you just say that with me? Setting priorities does not mean a to-do list. This is not listing the 70 things you must get done today. Setting priorities should be no longer than three or four things. Three or four things, big picture things that you want your life or your family's life to be all about. And so I'll share, Gio, and my priorities with you. It's very simple. We want to worship only Jesus. When we perceive ourselves or our kids getting a little dangerously close to some other altar, we hold each other accountable. We worship only Jesus. Second, we want to raise kids who love Jesus. What that means, in a way, is that we are limiting ourselves to what we will allow our kids to get involved in. If your priority is to raise kids who love Jesus, that also means you're not raising kids who play every sport, every season, and every instrument every day of their lives. Listen, your kids have bags under their eyes. They're worn out. You don't have to raise them with the same fear of missing out that you had. You can change the game. Your kid doesn't need to play lacrosse. Who plays lacrosse? Like, what's the... Why? Sorry. 
but why are you sacrificing sacred moments of rest together under the same roof at home together doing nothing once in a while to get them to the cross practice when it's 115 degrees outside? Why? Gymnastics, even worse. You don't have to do all this stuff. They're still going to make friends. They're not going to be loners. Right? Don't raise them with the same fear of missing out you were raised with. Don't cave to that social pressure. Raise kids who love Jesus. It's awesome. My kids and I are home a lot. Once in a while, Joel will say, my daughter, 11 years old, Daddy, can I do this dance class? Nope, we're going home. No, I'm sorry, y'all think I'm a terrible father. <laughs> and I don't care. I don't care what you think because I don't care about dance class. I care about raising kids who love Jesus. And that means saying no to a lot of stuff. And third, we want to inspire as many people as possible to follow Jesus throughout our lifetime. Throughout our lifetime, the operative words, because we're talking about a marathon here and not a sprint, which means we cannot burn the candle at both ends. It's a lifelong pursuit. All right, so that's what it means to set priorities. Second is shrinking your circle. This is very simple in terms of a concept. Some of you try to be all things to all people. Some of us get tied into every single committee, PTO, you know, auction planning committee or something, and you get locked into it. No, that's not. That You don't have to have a thousand people in your circle. You can shrink your circle. And I've seen this at the story. As the story has grown, I used to want to know every single person. We had 100 people. I knew every single one of them by name. I knew their pets' names. We went out for coffee every week. It was great. We can't do that. We have 1,000 people coming to the story. So I have to let other leaders do that stuff while we set different priorities. Our circle is our kids and family, our staff, our leaders, our future pastors and leaders that are emerging. And fine, finally is uh, sharing our burdens. I'm wrapping up with this, I promise. Sharing our burdens is learning to say no to some things you've been saying yes to while learning to say yes to some things you've been saying no to. Some of y'all have been serving in the same capacity in your life in certain groups. You've been coordinating that same auction at school for 13 years. It's time to hand it off. Lay hands on that person at school and bless them. <laughs> Take this auction and go thee, therefore. Or whatever you say, put it biblically. I don't care, just go and take it. You don't have to do it because your worth is not connected to that. And you're stealing from them an opportunity to serve. <laughs> Seriously. And, <laughs> and, and, and it's also saying yes to stuff you say no to. Saying yes to people's help. And sometimes we are so self-sufficient and so ruggedly individualistic that when people offer to help us, it's an insult. How dare you offer to help me? I don't need your help. And you don't mean it anyway. So I'll say, no, thank you. Uh, no. Somebody offers to help you. In 2019 in Houston, Texas, you say yes. It's been a stressful time at the Huffman House. So we've been moving, we've moved, it's super stressful. My mom's sick, super stressful, lots going on. Uh, people have been offering to help, send us food. You think I've said no? Oh, what'd I say? Yes. 
We like brisket and ribs and dessert, please, is what I've been saying. I scored another brisket between the 845 and 945 services today. Yes, here's my address. You're not staying for dinner, however, just drop it off. <laughs> is that awful? They want to help. If I say no, I'm robbing them of an opportunity to grow. I'm totally serious. People want to help you. Let them help you. That means saying yes to carpools and yes to meal trains and yes to prayer circles. Let people serve you. Sometimes that's what it means to be a leader in the way of Jesus. Listen, whatever it is that's overtaxed you, there's a better way. Don't keep doing this to yourself, please. Don't keep pressing yourself to the point of no return. It's a better way. Set your priorities. Shrink your circle and share your burden. Would you pray with me? Jesus, teach us how to lead as you led. Help us to be humble enough to be corrected. Help us to be selfless enough to be servant leaders. Help us most of all to know when it's time to receive help from others instead of just giving all the time. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.